0: challenging things sometimes preaching from a book like this in the old testament with a book that sometimes like we said in our first sermon is challenging even to read it just to read it people just read it just by reading it many people won't even understand what it's saying but once you get if you get a version that is more easier to read you can start you know reading some commentaries you can start seeing what is happening in this book i pray that as the lord brings to our hearts today lay bare in our hearts today what is happening in lamentations chapter 2 that it will apply as we face the things that are happening around us remember if you look at your program i said the main point that i'm going to be laying bare today in lamentations chapter 2 is that i will be emphasizing the point or the importance of the fact that we need to look at suffering from god's perspective we want to have a vertical perspective Of suffering not a horizontal perspective like we've always had we always want to look at why you know this around me this person did this this is happening see what that person is doing nobody cares and all of that rather than saying god what is happening we want to go back and read the life of job and see how job saw his suffering you know even at that be the best you know, by refining what Job saw and Job's perspective and, you know, gluing it to Christ's perspective and making it be our perspective. So this morning, for us to do that in this lamentation, we are going to engage three vertical activities when we are faced with suffering. But remember this, the reason I choose to talk about suffering and we went back to lamentations is because of, the things we see happening around us. The dead on, you know, how many people are dying through the things that are happening. Every day you see different types of things coming up, new wars, people are wounded. There are accidents, people are killed. We are losing loved ones. And problems, family problems, individual problems at workplace, you know, different things that we are suffering with. And we are always bound to come to the place now or later where we, we, we get caught up with suffering. And believe me, you are not. You might not be there right now, but the day will come when you reflect over this. But I wanted to call us to feel for those around us, because as Christians, remember we have been instructed by Christ Himself, like we saw last week, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and not only rejoice, but mourn with those who are mourning. And that is exactly the kind of
1: <clears throat>
0: foundation that this second point in. Lamentations chapter 2 lays for us when it comes to the perspective of suffering. Now if you you are you like titles, you know, this morning we'll be talking under the title looking at suffering from God's perspective. And I also notice that far too often we, we we don't think rightly about our suffering when it enters or suffering when it enters our lives. And if we don't think rightly about suffering, we certainly won't respond rightly because it's only right thinking that will lead to right response. Now imagine a man complaining about a pain in his chest to his wife, do something, you know, he, he exclaims, you know, his wife, you know, he's telling his wife to do something, I'm feeling a pain in my chest and he's insisting. So she she, she headed for the phone, you know, but he quickly grabbed her arm and asked, what are you doing? You know, I'm asking you, I have a pain in my chest. I'm asking you to help and you, you're running to get the phone. And then the wife says, I'm calling a doctor. I'm afraid there's something seriously going on and we, we need to find out what it is. We The man's, you know, the man is still, his, his hand is still grabbing the, he's still holding on to the wife's hand. And he's telling the wife, I'm not sure you are serious about this. I'm still feeling the pain. He's insisting. I don't, you know, want you to, to know what's causing the pain. I just want you to, to leave. Give me some some of those heavy-duty painkillers from, you know, the cabinet or from a, a medical box or something. So give me some sleeping pills. I'll feel better this, you know. I know. I know that I'll feel better. You don't need to call the doctor, no. The book of Proverbs, as I read through the book of Proverbs, it has a good word for, for that man. The man I just described to you in my little drama. It's called... The book of Proverbs actually calls him a fool, because to have the symptoms of severe chest pains, but not pursue the potential life-threatening cause, wanting temporal self-relief from painkillers is foolishness. The God-given purpose of pain is to alert us to something that needs attention. Very often, we don't think, we say, no, it's just temporary. I will deal with it, you know, I will deal with it. You know, we, we, you know, African men, we have a, that, 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 that thing we want to, you know, we, we don't want to put our problem out there. It is me. I can deal with my problem. Leave it. It's my family problem. I will deal with it. In this case, the man's chest pain is likely alerting him that he needs to, you know, he needs to be given attention by some specialist of the heart or something of that sort. And the wife is taking the right decision to call, you know, an emergency doctor or something. I love, you know, the title of medical doc, uh, uh, One medical doctor, uh, I I work with Fairview. You know, Fairview, we clean Fairview. So I see the things that are written in some of the doctors' offices. I remember one doctor, I, I, I particularly his name is Doctor Paul Brown. He writes different things in different months in the door of his office, and there is something that he wrote that caught my attention. He wrote something at the door of his office: "The gifts nobody wants," and I kept. I'm like, why will he write that in the door of his office, the gift nobody wants? And that's our problem precisely. We don't see pain as a God-given gift designed to accomplish something for our benefit. Now, I'm linking that to, 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 to this seminar. I don't think maybe that is what he was thinking about. But I'm thinking like, God's pain to us is a gift that nobody actually wants. As the old you know, commercial, if you watch some of these old commercials, you're watching some of this old movie, there's an old commercial, it puts it this way, we haven't got time for the pain, let alone much interested in finding out why the pain has come as, you know, to address the heart problem. I was watching a a, 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 a an old cowboy movie acted here in America and that commercial came up and that, you know, they kept repeating that, the particular drug that was being sold in the 70s and 80s. So to begin with, it is because of our scene that suffering has come into the world. It is because of sin that suffering has come into the world. That's a given. Furthermore, it's because we are sinners that we do not naturally respond rightly to suffering, and we need help if we are going to, you know, get let our suffering please God. Thankfully, God has already given us such help in His Word, and. Just like we saw last week in Lamentations chapter 1, we will see this week in Lamentations chapter 2, how Lamentations chapter 2 can be that help for us. When it's time to mourn, you know, we, we said that was the general theme that we'll be looking at Lamentations under. And in, in Lamentations chapter 2, there are several things that God has listed out that I want us to just look at some of it and see how that can speak to us. And sometimes when we read this, Things in the English, some of the meanings are really just hidden. Because if you look, you start going back to the Hebrew, back and forth, which takes a lot of time. You will see so much rich depth that is being communicated through the hands of the writer as God spoke to God spoke to them. But this morning, let me just outline some things to us as we look at this. Uh, the reasons why you know how we can use suffering in a way that pleases God. So that's an important perspective. And to do so. This lamentation teaches us to engage three vertical three vertical activities when we suffer. The first one I want to present to us this morning is that we need to see the Lord in our suffering. Now, if you read that lamentation, we kind of similarly, you know accepted that Jeremiah would have been the one writing this lamentation. As we read through this second, you know, ditch as it is called, we, we are going to notice three primary movements. Right off the debate, you know, the first ten verses. They would would hear that direct reference to the Lord. He keeps saying the Lord. And the pronoun he, he is him, again and again, keep appearing in those first 10 verses. And if you count the number of actions attributed to the Lord in this first movement, you will discover that the total, the total comes to around 40, 40 different times that he says that. That's right. 40 depictions of God's involvement in tragedy. Very often we think of tragedy as something that comes from our enemy or today's church is all about killing Satan, chaining Satan, destroying demons, you know, that is people spend hours trying to destroy Satan and tie Satan, bind Satan, all kinds of things. And sometimes right there, God just sits there like shaking his head, like what is happening to these people? Can they see that this is from my hand? Jeremiah knows this. He knows that this is coming from the hand of the Lord. He shares that the Lord brought about this destruction in verses 1 to 8. So, you know, he says he destroyed Zion's splendor. He is the one that brought Zion to the place where it is. Zion is, in essence, is another name for Jerusalem. He keeps saying the daughter of Zion is in reference to God's people, Israel. Where they are, it is where God has put them. Here he says the Lord Himself is the one that has destroyed their beauty, Zion's splendor. Even the fact that the temple was. There, didn't stop him. Jeremiah says the Lord did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. Remember 1 Chronicles 28.2 indicates that God's footstool is a reference to the act of the covenant in the Holy of Holies. God did not, when he came to God's destruction of that place, he did not even think about that. God takes sin seriously. As I mentioned in our first study, I am indebted to, to one author, Kaiser, as I was reading Kaiser's commentary, Thank God for Scholarship. Some I think some of you might say, oh, these, these things are just for pastors. No, please, I pray that you you get some of these books and read them. Come to me, I'll give you some of these books. They are seated here. For you to just read them and see how God has blessed men's heart with so much knowledge to be able to express the things that he has said in scriptures. You know, his biblical approach to personal suffering in that context really helps to explain what I'm saying this morning and how he, refer, he, he refers to it frequently in his in his studies. This is what Kaiser actually read that I I, I took out from what he read from that commentary. He says that the reason that the ark was named, his footstool, is that the Lord was enthroned and seated between the cherubims, as we read in 1 Samuel 4.4 and in 2 Samuel 6.2, which were over the ark of the covenant. Does the Lord's feet, you know, rested on the cover of the ark what is known as the mercy seat. So did you catch that? God was so angry with his people and they are seeing that even his footstool, his mercy seat couldn't stop him, no more mercy. Now it's time for judgment. He actually brought that on them. So there are people who have trouble attributing anger to God. They think, oh, God is just there, just smiling. God is just his God, you know, like, you know, nothing. He has, people don't want to hear anything about God and anger. God should just be a smiling God, you know, everything is well, you know, don't do that again, you know. Why do people struggle with to attribute anger with God? Probably because the kind of anger we usually see, sometimes even we we, we ourselves demonstrate, is explosive anger, out of control, irrational, selfish anger. So when we think of anger, that's what comes to our mind. But that's not the truth about God's anger. When God expresses his anger, he is always under control, rational. His anger is righteous. Jeremiah calls our attention to God's anger 10 times in this book and five times in chapter two. He calls our attention to that. So we shouldn't wonder why we see God's anger at times. We should wonder why we don't see it more often in the light of our sins. Because daily, we are supposed to see that and we don't see it. We suddenly see it here in some perspective, the things that are happening around us. He destroys Zion's splendor. The next thing we see is that he actually destroys Zion's kingdom in verse two. And right there, it is very, very clear because the way it is captured, it makes it very clear that it is God that is doing it. The kingdom is his kingdom. He is the one that is building it. He knows when it is turning into a sinful one, and he knows when it is righteous. So he has the right to do what he has to do. And then we see the fact that he actually destroys Zion's power. He destroys its beauty. He, de- You know, he destroys its palaces, its temple. Now, when I talk about its temple, the temple to an Israelite is something I can't really explain. It. It's so deep. The temple to an Israelite, till date, it's very, very important. They just didn't have their temple to go to any, you know... To, go any longer and and they didn't have it because the lord had taken that temple away from them and he destroyed his own house the place he had designated for his people to come worship him in his presence but not just the temple he stopped the holy feast too no more feast of tabernacle or feast of unleavened bread or sabbaths he stopped them all did you catch that god stopped the very activity he himself commanded because of the people's sin, why would he do that? Because those things are supposed to be a means to something and not an end. The same like we go to church, some people think this is an end in itself, no. The reason we even have a building somewhere, we are raising this money, it is because we want to get a place to gather, but that is not an end. It is what is in our hearts and our relationship with our father, that is the end. So he's coming to church for that matter. If you are not giving yourself first to him, then he is not interested in your doing things for him, even good things. Beware my brothers and sisters of vain and empty religion. It, it easily creeps into our midst and can overtake us. Let us first give our hearts and the Lord would be so happy to receive whatever we do. It rouses his anger when we don't first give our hearts. God even goes further to destroy his altar in verse seven. Now that's a staggering thought that God destroys his altar. The Lord rejected his altar. Without an altar, there is no acceptable place for bringing sacrifices. There are actually churches today with no altar because the people do it for sight. They do it for self glory and they do it for other reasons Where the altar of God has been taken away and without blood sacrifice, like for Israel, there is no atonement for sin. for the church without the blood of Christ being the intermediary factor that we believe and embrace this with all of our hearts. There is no need for any offerings because they in themselves have no altar to be laid on because the altar through which these sacrifices, like our offerings this morning, can be accepted is only through the person of Christ that we now believe in him. And the Lord rejected the very altar He commanded His people to build. What does that say to us about the Lord? For starters, it says that sinners need more than an altar. The Jews had been bringing lambs, you know, this to this place for centuries, right up to the day that those Babylonian soldiers smashed and burnt it down. They had been bringing all of that. Merely coming to the altar didn't mean a thing to the Lord, you know. He didn't mean a thing to to him without their hearts being right with him. So God hates vain rituals. He actually hates it. But there is the sinners, that's the sinner's problem. We don't have right hearts. We don't have right hearts. We need a new heart. If we are going to offer God anything that is acceptable, including sacrifices. That's why Jeremiah announced that God was going to make a new covenant with his people in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. One in which he himself would be his law, put his law in their hearts. If we are going to be right with God, we need a new heart. So, what's more, what was the point of this altar? This temple and the whole sacrificial system in the first, you know, in the first place, it all pointed to something else, to another altar. And this altar was Christ Jesus, our Savior, another temple, Christ's body. And the final sacrifice, the lamb of God who would be slain for the sins of his people outside the same city 600 years later. If you are not a Christian, here's a word for you this morning, brothers and sisters. I'm so glad you are here. But please know this. You can't patch things up with God by coming to church or being part of our service. You need a new heart. And you need forgiveness. And you can have both. If you will come, and only if you come to Christ, there is no other way to do this. But that's not all the Lord destroyed, says Jeremiah. He also destroyed Zion's wall. We see that in verse 8. Jeremiah makes it sound like a, you know, he makes this actually sounds like the Lord himself, rather than the Babylonians attack Jerusalem and smash the wall into rubbles. How so? Because the Lord is sovereign. Brothers, God is sovereign, and he knows it. In fact, Jeremiah will s- spell it out clearly in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 30, 37 to 38. Who can speak and, ha- and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? That's the question he will ask. We'll see that further. For from the Lord Most High, says Jeremiah, and he saw it firsthand. I can't explain this, but I believe it. The Lord decrees the good things and the calamities too. He decrees those things. Jeremiah shares the, 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 the results of this destruction in verse 9 and 10. We are, we are talking about suffering on a national scale, like we've never known as a nation or as a people. Maybe corona can the, the death in Corona can go something close to that, you know, maybe something close to that. And it's, it didn't just happen. Jeremiah attributes three results to the Lord's judgment three results. The first one he attributes is that he took away their king. In verse 9a, Literally, you can read Second Kings 24 for for the details. Nebuchadnezzar took King Jehochin captive to Babylon and made Zedekiah his puppet king, from chapter 15 to chapter 17. And later, when King Zedekiah rebelled, he was blinded, he was put in shackles, and he was hauled off into Babylon, where he died in Second Kings 25 verse 7. The, the second thing we saw is we see is that he took away their law, in verse 9b, and there's there's anything a nation needs when destruction hits it, it's leadership. And he, if you doubt that, take a look at earthquake stro- uh, stroking Haiti, for instance. Dr. Janga is there. He can tell us better. You know, relief comes and it sits on the ship without leadership. I read this off some government classified documents from the UN and other that, that the, it just comes and sits there. Equators hit the nation several times and Relief has come in, people have given things and those things just appear on the shore and they are there in the ship because there's no leadership. The people need decision makers to put the pieces back together. That's gone, says Jeremiah, in the case of Israel. No more king to lead the nation, but no more guidance from the Lord either. No more law and no more prophetic visions. That was a very serious problem for Israel. The third thing we see is that he took... Away their joy in verse ten. The elders are sitting on the ground in the silent in silence, and you know young women are bowed low too. The the picture is one of absolute hopelessness. When you read that particular, when you read Lamentations chapter two, verse ten, and at this point Jeremiah can take it no longer. So he breaks forth the third person. He breaks forth into the third person to the first, from the first person in verses eleven and twelve, and shares how all of this affected his personality so jeremiah shared his own you know, in verse 11 12 how this affected him what did jeremiah do the first thing he did in verse 11 is that he grieved i mean he grieved to the point where he couldn't see straight and his heart was you know fell out of his chest to the ground and he and did you catch what hit him the hardest above all the nightmarish you know atrocities that he witnessed he grieved most for the children. When I was reading this, I was like, why does Jeremiah keep mentioning the children? He keeps talking about the children in verse 12. Children. He even quotes from he even quotes them in verse 12. They say to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like wounded men in the streets in the city, as they, their lives ebb away in, in their mother's arm. Simply saying they were so hungry, you know, like some of those videos we've seen. The mothers held their children and they could not not have food to give them. And the children were dying right there in their arms because of hunger. And yet there is hope even in that kind of depiction, in that reality. Do you see what Jeremiah is doing? It's what we need to do when we are suffering. We need to look at the top down, vertical, not horizontal, not around us. If you keep looking around you in times of your pain, you might just your pain might just increase. You might just hear things that will move you to the point of madness. Jeremiah wants the people to look up vertically. You know, he wants them to look up. We need to see the Lord in our suffering. That's what Jeremiah is encouraging here. He's not on vacation because he never takes a vacation. He's not taking a nap because he never naps. He is not oblivious to what's causing our pain. He's right there in the midst of all of these pains. Whatever you're going through this morning, God is right there, no matter how complicated it might sound to you. I want you to understand this. You might have even heard this before a hundred times and taught it and lived it, but in times of pain, believe me, you these things kind of just evaporate from our minds. I'm telling you what I've been through. I teach this thing, but when pain, when that kind of pain does come, the temptation sometimes is easy, it's easy for you to just go, I want to do everything horizontally. You know, you forget that there is a God who can actually deal with this. Did you lose your job? Is your family failing? Is your faith in Christ failing? Maybe you are sick and you're keeping it to yourself because there is no hope and you are dying in, inside of you. Maybe your relationship is just breaking apart. You can't hold it any longer. There is just something wrong somewhere that we can't explain all of it this morning. When the doctor starts using uh, plant C, you know, words, and when it snow, like w- when it snow those problems on you, like an earthquake hits a nation, God is there, He works. And we need to fix our gaze on Him. That should lead to a second vertical activity. The second vertical activity I want us to have this morning is we need to, to help others see the Lord in their suffering. That is what Jeremiah does in verse 9, 13 to 19. From a structural point of view, another pronoun shift occurs from verses 13 to 19, where he goes from he to I, to, to you. So he starts off verses 1 to 9, he says he. Verses 11 and 12, he goes to I. And in verses 13 to 19, he goes to you. That's because in this movement, Jeremiah is trying to help his people to do what he just did. That is to look at their suffering top down from God's perspective down. He, he did so by putting into words for them five subjects in this from verses 13 to 19. The first subject he, he brings forth to them is that he verbalizes what his people are feeling. What can I say to you? with what can i compare you you know he brings he says this thing sometimes when you are hurting it's hard to put your feelings into language let me help you says jeremiah your word is as deep as the sea okay that's how we feel yes but why but why so he takes us to the second level so he verbalizes what went wrong in verse 14 why did the tragic destruction why the tragic destruction of jerusalem why did it occur anyway you can't answer that question in a couple of ways. Ultimately, the Lord has an answer for it. On Mount Sinai, eight centuries earlier when he said, if you do not obey my law, I will destroy your land. Go back and check Leviticus chapter 26 for more details. So the people disobeyed God's word and he kept his word because God is in the business of keeping his word. Do not read these things and think God takes it for granted. God keeps his word. That's why the instructions came. But there's another reason it's not just the people, but the preachers who were to be blamed. How so, how should we blame the preachers or how were they to be blamed? Jeremiah had preachers who had told them that, you know, who had told them what they wanted to hear like most preachers in today's church, saying what people want to hear than rather being the servant. Sometimes it's difficult, but if God has given you a message, say it the way it is. It is God who has called you not man. Like Hannah, for example, according to Jeremiah 28, in the, in, in the fourth year of King Zedekiah's reign, he announced, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will break the yoke of the King of Babylon. You know, I love Jeremiah. what Jeremiah did to this text. He told Hananiah with sarcasm dripping from his lips, Amen, may the Lord do so. You know and then he told him in Jeremiah chapter 28 verse 15 and 16 listen Hananiah the Lord has not sent you yet you are persuading the nation to trust in lies therefore the Lord therefore that this is what the Lord would would say i am about to remove from the face of the earth this very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord my prayer is that God will not kill men out there who are misrepresenting him, but that he will turn their hearts to him. Because believe me, if God has to kill every lip this Sunday morning that misrepresented him from the pulpit, maybe next Sunday, there will be a national, international morning day for pastors. Because many of the lips that are preaching Christ today do not even take time to read the word, not to talk about representing him from his word. They just say their things. People now go to church. Church is becoming like a kind of business where some men sleep and dream at night and come and say what they 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 dreamt about. God's word has been kept aside and they use it for reference to say their things. May God help us as preachers of the word and may God help this the itching billions of years in our generation. Beloved brothers and sisters, beware of preachers who tell you what you want to hear. And the day I come to the place where I feel like that's what I'm having to do, you will see me you know, resigning the next day. That is not the work of a preacher. They don't have the power to pull off their sweet-sounding predictions from God's pulpit. That is not the place for that. Jeremiah hit the nail on the head when he told these people the truth to the point, when the Lord speaks, if you are representing the Lord, say what he said. What they needed were preachers who would expose their sin. Yeah, that's what your prophets like Hananiah did, didn't do. Here's a vital mark of God's kind of preacher, beloved brothers and sisters. Maybe you, you've been struggling with who is actually a preacher, you know, one that represents the Lord. He expresses, he exposes sin. He exposes sin and not just the other guy's sin, but your sin and his sin. Beware of preachers who never talk about your sin and their sin. Run away from them. That's not easy to do. For the fear of man and the love of man's approval are powerful, you know, deterrents that keep preachers from exposing sin. May God help me and may God help every preacher of the word this morning. But answer this. What kind of preacher do you want? I'm asking you, living members of Living Water Baptist Church. Do you want a preacher who exposes your sin? Or do you want one that makes you feel good every Sunday morning? I need to tell you this, because this might be my last day of saying it. A lot of people hated Jeremiah, but in the end, they wish they had listened to him. This is no teenage, I told you so, no, coming from Jeremiah. He's trying to help his people look at their suffering top down. And that's what I'm trying to do to you this morning. That's why he verbalizes for the sake what they are feeling, and then what went wrong. And thirdly, Jeremiah verbalizes what their enemies were saying in verse 15 and 16. All your enemies open their mouth wide against you. They covered you. There are always mockers ready to have their way when the people of God fall. Say, ah, we told you, (laughs) see that pastor. There are always people like that. You know how I know it, go on Facebook. There are people out there, their work is to mock, Servants of God. They mock and mock because that is all they know. And mock they did in the sixth century. Did you hear what happened to those, you know, upy folks who have claimed to be God-choosing people? Choosing, right? Bunch of hypocrites. (laughs) I like the way people talk about, you know, servants of God on Facebook. The word hypocrite often comes up. Got what they deserve, you know. Good for them. Pretenders. Tough to say, you know, but needed, and Jeremiah knew it. His people had to face the fact that their sinful actions had tarnished God's beautiful reputation. They were the only ones that affected who were affected by this tragedy. So was he? He was now the brunt, he was now the brunt of the pagan's joke. He was he had become a loving stone, you know. They were laughing at Israel, and Jeremiah was part of it. But even in this, Jeremiah affirms God's sovereignty. Notice verse 17, where he says, the Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you throughout pity. Without pity, he has let your enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying is, Jeremiah has verbalized what the Lord has just done. He has verbalized what his people needed verses 18 and 19 three things that they needed you need to repent you need to repent the second thing they needed is that they needed to pour out their hearts to the lord pour out your heart like water in the presence of the lord then you need to pray for your children something we did this morning amongst us our sinful decisions never affect only us sadly they affect our children and our children's children. Every decision you make when it comes to sin, do not think that it will affect only you, no. You're actually building a foundation. If you do not turn to the Lord for that foundation to be destroyed, then know that you have destroyed another generation. My heart aches when I hear someone say, I have had it with my marriage. I've had it with my, with my children. I've had it and it, all this complaint, it aches. It, is, it happens amongst us, not because we've been condemned but because we are living in a world that is full of sin and we have to deal with these realities. And don't throw a guilt trip on me about my kids. They will just be fine, you know? Some people have said that to me. Sadly, people I thought actually knew the Lord when I brought up issues about their own children. And they're like, you have children, go deal with your own children, Pastor. My word to you this morning is better listen to Jeremiah. What should you do when you find yourself in a tragic circumstance with your world Crushing around you, that's a fitting question on this particular day that we call Sunday, for it's a day of worship. What should I do? Jeremiah gives you the answer. It's not complicated. Repent, pour out your heart before the Lord, then pray for your children. The way. By, by the way, let me say that, why pray for kids? Why do we have to pray for our children? It's because though you are powerless to help them, He's not. And I believe God answers our prayers, just like he answered the prayer of Jeremiah. Remember 40 you know, you, you remember uh, the 14 year boys by the names Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and, and Daniel, right? They ended up in Babylon, apparently alone, where their parents were killed, but God protected them and even promoted them to positions of influence in that secular empire. This isn't a sentimental prayer, no. I think that is, in reality, it's a Messianic prayer. Jeremiah knew that the future of God's Messianic plan depended on children. And if all Jewish children died, then the nation would die. And if the nation died, so did God's promise to David to bring the Messiah into the world. Jesus would go with it. She lived, remember him, his Joachim son. And you will find him in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. That's the connection where he's listed as the next link in the chain that gets us to King Jesus. And three vertical activities when suffering hits. One, you know, we need to see the Lord in our suffering. Two, we need to help others see the Lord in their suffering. And I end with this this morning. We need to talk to the Lord about what we are seeing. Verse 20 to 22, you see Jeremiah does just that. Jeremiah asks for the Lord's attention. Look, oh, Lord, and then he goes on to talk about it. I pray that as a church, we will learn to pray for the suffering. We will not just sit in our comfort. That's not a given for sure. When people suffer, many people turn a deaf ear to the Lord, not Jeremiah. He turns to the Lord. And by penning or penning his lamentation, he's helping his people to do the same, to see what he's saying. Let me end this morning by saying that it shows us that God is not passive when sin is present. Do not think that just because you, you, you have tarried in sin and God hasn't done something, it's as if God is passive. God is not passive. Sometimes we get complacent, even as children of God. I know I do. Maybe if I don't know about you. But we get used to sin in our lives with nothing happening. And then we just continue in it it's just a matter of time says jeremiah we cannot afford to be passive about dealing with our sins but how can we that's the second lesson of lamentations chapter 2 like all scripture it points us to christ namely to his cross that is where we should turn to when we discover sin i remember this passage i read in john chapter 5 verse 39 jesus made it clear that all scripture speaks of him and that includes the second lamentation. Had He God not cared or loved us so intently, He would not have troubled Himself to call His wandering sin- us wandering sinners back to Himself, so that He can embrace us with His warmth, His comfort, and His solutions. But that is what He does this morning. Are you suffering in any way? God wants you to look up to Him. Stop blaming people around you. Stop calling people up and down and trying to justify whatever reason what is happening. Stop throwing blames. Oh, it's it's the president's fault. Oh, it's the governor's fault. It's uh, it's bad policy. Is We we like that, but that's not what God wants you to do this morning. He wants you to turn to him. One thing about suffering is that God knows about it. That's what this is all about, beloved. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Yes, he, he, he would embrace the sinner, He will judge sin, but his intent is to restore the sinner. It's not to condemn him. So he calls you this morning to the place where there is forgiveness at the cross of Christ. And that's why he sent his son to that cross to die in your place. There is no need for you to die again in your sin. So he could judge sin and restore you back to him. He will restore you today if you will repent and put your trust in his son, Jesus Christ. If suffering enters our lives, You can be sure it went through the hand of a good God first. And that's the reason for you to be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Let me end by repeating what I just just said. If suffering enters our life, be sure about this. That suffering went through the hands of a good God. Let, Let me pray for you this morning. We humbly bow our heads, O Lord, and we ask that may you forgive our sins. We must say we have sinned and sinned against you. We pray that may you help us to submit ourselves to the healing power of the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. I ask on behalf of every member of Living Water Baptist Church, I come before you like A son, a shepherd, whose sheep you've given to cater for. Not my sheep, your sheep, Lord, that you would have mercy on us. And you would draw our hearts to you. For your son's sake, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Good, Jude, can you close us with a hymn.
1: <clears throat> Jude. There. as we go, give us the strength to live